What's up, everybody, and welcome to The Goose is Loose, episode number two. Uh, admittedly, I'm not a morning person or an afternoon person. I'm more of a night guy. So I think I'll start recording these Thursday night, and I'll be posting them on Thursday late night, Friday morning, so you can enjoy them on your commute. Otherwise, you will be getting them kind of late on Friday, and I think uh, a lot of you would listen to them on your commute like I listen to my favorite podcast, so I would try to do that for you. Today's topics, we're going to be talking about what's going on with homelessness in Orange County, updates on that, updates on Trump's uh, new veteran affairs pick, a man by the name of Ronnie Jackson. That's a fun name. We're talking about a really important New York Times study. I also want to talk about, combined with that, the, dif- the difference between discrimination and racism. I think that's really important. Um, and then finally, a little note on power and a little story for you about my own experience with um, power. I read a lot of books on it. I'm a big fan of the topic, um, especially the book, you know, To Win Friends and Influence People. If you haven't read that, definitely pick that up. That's not a paid sponsorship. If you were wondering, that's honestly a good book recommendation. Okay, I know you guys think I have a lot of paid sponsorships, but I don't. It's surprising. So let's start with homelessness in Orange County. Okay, I'm just going to give you a few points here. Um, First and foremost, that vote that happened last week, the 4-to-1 vote to place temporary homeless shelters in Irvine, Laguna Niguel, and Huntington Beach. One of them was going to be close to my house. That has been rescinded because of protests. Folks like yourselves have protested and sent in written declarations and signed petitions and threatened to shoot up schools and all of that. So uh, congratulations if you're pulling for that. You have won. They're trying to figure out a different thing to do. Also, something that happened uh, that today, actually, Mary Hale retired um, right after the county supervisor admitted to not spending tens of millions of dollars that they had set aside for this exact purpose. The homelessness situation, the homelessness resources in Orange County are decades behind because of them hiding this money. Supervisors Andrew Doe and Todd Spitzer, let's remember those names, Andrew Doe and Todd Spitzer, um, alleged county health care agency staff members hid, okay, so when they say that, alleged county health care agency staff members, it's just them, right? They're just trying to hide behind somebody. Let's just remember Andrew Doe and Todd Spitzer throughout this whole thing. Hid upwards of $184 million set aside uh, for mental health services, essentially to help with homelessness. Uh, The Civic Center is going to be stepping up, hopefully to help. Um, We'll see how well that goes, but I wouldn't count on it too much until we have a more permanent solution for housing the homeless. Obviously, I think that we need to help the homeless. I also talked about this last week where I said we have to rezone churches to allow them to be zoned as homeless shelters so they can feed and house homelessness. Um, On the end of, if you're a church, you should be absolutely wanting to do this. That's exactly what you're called to do, unless you're part of some strange religion I've never heard of who hates poor people. Um, If you're not, then this is right up your wheelhouse. Okay. I want to kind of speed through this because I really want to talk about the New York Times article. So Trump's new VA pick, Mr. Ronnie Jackson. Um, Some people are upset about this. I think it's kind of fair to be upset, especially if you care about veterans. If you are a veteran, this guy has absolutely no experience in handling that. He is the White House physician. He was the White House physician for Barack Obama. He was the White House physician for George W. Bush. And now he's claiming that Donald Trump is in perfect health, even though he's 70 and he's fit like a horse, even though he's obese. And even though he has signs of heart disease, but what are you going to do? So Ronnie Jackson's a bit of a liar, it sounds like. 
but he did serve in Afghanistan. And obviously, his experience being a doctor, I don't know how much that helps you in the VA. But um, yeah, there we go. Donald Trump has a knack for putting people in positions they're not prepared for. Think of Betsy DeVos. Think of um, whoever's running the federal housing. All very unprepared. So I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Ben Carson, that's what I'm thinking of. Ben Carson, unbelievably unprepared for his job as well, doing a very poor job. If you'd remember, he's in a uh, bit of a controversy by buying a $30,000 set of table and chairs for his dining room. He cited safety concerns after he denied knowing about it. And then when they said, yes, sir, you do know about it, he said, well, it was for safety. Uh, Let me tell you, I have a table and chairs set here in my house from Ikea. It costs about $80 for the whole set. Uh, It's very safe. I'm much bigger than Ben Carson, and I am completely safe. So Ben Carson's full of it, and he's unprepared for his job. Okay, now let's get to that New York Times article. Yum City. Okay, folks, this is delicious. This is based on a big study by the New York – well, not by the New York Times. The New York Times is citing a study. They're citing a very small portion of it, which I think is fair, but it's also, of course, driving an agenda. And they're talking about – Uh, how black boys do in society. Their main point here is that black boys, even if they grow up rich, are more likely to end up poor. They also talk about the lack of males, not males per se, the lack of father figures in a neighborhood has a dramatic impact on the outcome of kids. As we know, black neighborhoods are, I mean, it's a running joke, right? Black kids don't know their dads. Um, I mean, that has a huge effect on them. Um, share of children living in low poverty neighborhoods with many fathers present, only 4% of black kids. So let me say that again. Children living in low poverty neighborhoods with many fathers present, 4%, very low. Share of children living in high poverty neighborhoods with few fathers present. So if you go to a poor neighborhood, there's not a lot of dads around. How many kids, what kind of, what kind of kids do you see? Well, you see 1% white kids, you see 66% black kids. So high poverty neighborhoods with few fathers, you're more likely to find black children than not. Uh, it's two-thirds, right? And finally, here's another point they really wanted to bring out. Um, the son of a black family from the top 1% had about the same chance of being incarcerated on a given day as the son of white families, earning 36000 So essentially they're saying the richest uh, teenage black kid has the same chance of being arrested as a very low-income white kid. Uh, and of course, the New York Times here is just trying to harp on racism. Ben Shapiro did a great piece on this, um, and I think he brought up some really good points, some points that I, I myself agree with. For example, if you look back at immigration, you had um, – think of the Jews, think of the Italians, think of the Irish. And not only were they looked down upon, right, although I did have a fun argument with various people who thought that the Irish were treated just as poorly as blacks, which is absolutely not true. Um, If you know the definition of an indentured servant and you know what slavery was, uh, you know that because indentured servitude doesn't mean you're owned. It means you're working to pay off a debt. Slavery means you're owned. Your children are owned. You are owned. You can be sold. Indentured servant, you can't be sold. You can't be beaten to the ground. You can't be starved like a dog. Uh, It's not how it works. So anyways, just to get that myth out of the way before I move on, the Irish were not treated as poorly as slaves. That's bogus. The Irish were not slaves in America. They were indentured servants. It's very different. My point. The Irish, the Italians, the Jews, uh, even the Chinese, uh, 
had a had a history of high crime rates when they got to this country. It's the American story, right? Immigrants come to the country. The Cubans have a huge. Uh, if you listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, they just do one with T.J. English and Joey Diaz. Just did a podcast on the Cuban crime spree that happened uh, right around when JFK was shot. They believe the Cubans had something to do with that. Uh, you should go listen to that podcast. That's super great. It's about three hours long. Mine's about 45 minutes. So maybe I'll do a little bit on it next time. My point is, that's the immigrant story, right? People come here, they're poor, they get into crime. Then their crime rate lowers and they come out of it. So Ben Shapiro was talking about, listen, look at look at Asian immigrants. Asian immigrants are now the top earning households in America. I'm looking at a chart of it right now. They are above whites followed by Hispanics, followed by Native Americans, which are very nearly right there with blacks. So why is that, right? There has to be something there. But see, Ben Shapiro also makes the classic mistake that I think he makes a lot of times. So I agree with him probably about 95% of the, well, 90% of the time, Ben Shapiro and I align. If you want to know what I think about something, you can probably listen to Ben Shapiro. But there are times Ben Shapiro does a bit of a straw man. He doesn't consider the totality of the circumstances. And I think this is one of those times. When you look at these numbers, right, you're looking at, okay, so Asian Americans, there was something, something, and they did better. And there were laws. I mean, there were laws set up to hinder Asian Americans, right? Think of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is exactly what it sounds like. Think of Japanese internment camps. There were definitely things that set up to hinder um, Asian Americans, absolutely. But, and here's where I differ. So do I think that some of that is work ethic? Absolutely. Do I think some of that is culture? Absolutely. Have you ever been to a low-income, a poverty-stricken neighborhood? I have. I grew up there. And, you know, until I was 13, I was there. And all these kids, they don't care about school. They want to play basketball. They want to be football stars. They're meddling in drugs. And they're not a lot of father figures, as the study suggests, that would help. They're not around. My own father wasn't around, you know, at this time. So that, I think that's a good point. But the culture is different. You go into an Asian American home, first generation especially, and what do the parents emphasize? Education. You will study. You will get an education. You will do well. Did those kids have fun? Not all the time. Are they the coolest kids? Not all the time. No. But they do well, and now Asian Americans are the number one earning households in this country. They're number one business owners per capita as a percentage. They own more businesses. They do better. They do better in school. Why is that? Just a few decades ago, there was a Chinese Exclusion Act. Just a few decades ago, they were they were building the railroads. They were laborers. And now they make a majority of the income in the country. You know, for for their uh, population, it's crazy. So I think some of that is absolutely. Um, I think some of that's absolutely just work ethic. I think it's work ethic. I think it's what you value. I think it's what you praise. Um, of course, Asian American homes have a lower, have a higher marriage rate and a lower divorce rate um, than Black families. They're more likely to have a father in the home. That's of course going to have an impact, uh, especially on the crime rate. I think that 
when you talk about crime rates, people get uncomfortable. But if you look at it, 50% of violent crime is committed by African Americans. Now here's what that doesn't mean, and this is why people get uncomfortable. That doesn't mean blacks are biologically more violent, right? That's not what that means. Let's, and here's a perfect time to talk about discrimination versus racism. So Ben Shapiro talked about this, and I like this point a lot. There's three types of discrimination slash racism. There is outright racism, where you say, I don't like black people because they're black, or genetically they're inferior, or anything like that. You're just a racist. There is discrimination, um, I think he called it 1B, which is the one that I want to talk about. The last one, of course, is just a simple discrimination you do every day of, do I want to drink water or soda? Do I want to eat an apple or you know a pear? Whatever. The second one is the important one, which is when you make decisions based off of group data. And when you make decisions off of group data, it makes you feel a little uneasy because it's very um, – it feels like racism, but it's not. It's making a decision based on group data. So let's imagine um, you were – hiring a construction worker and people in group x were known to be reliable and they show up on time and they get their work done and let's say at a 60 percent clip 60 percent of them and people in group y were known to be unreliable and not show up and not get their work done in fact the reliability of group y let's say was at 10 percent who would you hire Right? If you were just hiring somebody, you would hire somebody from Group X. Now, if that correlated to races, you would be called a racist. But not really. You're looking at data and you're making a decision. Right? You're making a decision on probability. There was a time uh, under Barack Obama when he was trying to help African Americans. He was trying to help minorities who had been convicted of crimes. And some of those crimes were really non-issues, right? And I'll talk about that in a second because um, that kind of ties in back to why African-Americans stay in poverty. I'll get, that to, I'll get that to in a second. But he enacted essentially a law that said you can't do an extensive background check on these people thinking that, well, people won't see their earlier infractions. They won't see their earlier you know, marijuana possession or petty theft. They won't see that, so they'll hire them more. Guess what happened? The same thing that usually happens when government gets involved. Less minorities were hired. Why? Well, the crime rate by, uh, around minorities is higher than the crime rate of white people. If you're, a high, if you're an employer and you're looking to hire somebody, are you going to hire somebody from the group of people who have a higher crime rate? Or are you going to hire somebody from the group of people who have a lower crime rate? Of course, you're going to hire somebody from the lower crime rate. Simply because that kind of maps onto races doesn't make you a racist. It makes you someone who makes decisions based on group data. For example, if I was in a school and I saw a really angry-looking white kid and he was digging for something in his locker and he was pulling something out that looked like a gun, I would immediately think he was a school shooter. Why? Because every single school shooter has been some angry white teenager. If he was black, I wouldn't think that at all. I would think... That kid maybe has a skateboard or something. Um, does that make me a racist? I think that makes me someone who considers decisions on group data. I like to define racism very narrowly. I think it gets thrown around too much, especially with people like Donald Trump. Has Donald Trump said racist things? I think so. Is he a racist? I don't think so. 
And I think when you throw the word around like this all the time, oh, he's a racist, oh, she's a racist, oh, that's racist, you're, you're watering it down. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. When I say racist, I want it to be somebody who hates me because I'm brown, right? That's what I want. Not some guy when I'm walking down the street and he sees me and I'm bigger than him and I'm brown and he gets scared. Well, maybe you should be scared, right? Because the crime rate among Latinos is a little higher than the crime rate around his own neighborhood. So he's, he's, he's fearful based on group data. And maybe there's some racism in there, some, just some bias against people of color. Of course that exists. And that's where I'm going to next. So why do black neighborhoods have less fathers? Well, as we all know about drug laws, most of them were enacted to target minorities. Marijuana was enacted to target Mexicans, um, right? Marijuana is what they called it to really target Mexicans back in the day. Think of the uh, heroin versus crack cocaine, or sorry, cocaine versus crack epidemic. When cocaine, who was mostly used by white people, carried a sentence 10 times lighter than crack, which is mostly used by black people. A lot of these laws were enacted simply to target minorities. And that's where you have this vicious cycle. Well, part of it, very you know, I don't want to I don't want to peg anything to one reason. I don't like people that do that. But you have to get this vicious cycle of missing fathers lead to bad boys, essentially, who lead to higher crime, which leads to prison, which leads to more kids without fathers. Frivolous drug laws have really hurt the African American community. If I was somebody who was a Democrat, which is all you know, only the only type of people blacks vote for right now, I would be pushing. That's exactly what I'd be doing because it'd keep more fathers at home. Yeah, legalization of marijuana, legalization of most drugs, as you know, I believe in as a libertarian. I think you should legalize most drugs. Look at Portugal. Portugal uh, essentially made all soft drugs legal, and hard drugs, the very addictive drugs such as cocaine and crack. They send you to mandatory rehab, and maybe you spend a couple days in a nice prison. Their prisons over there are fantastic. They got beds, they got TVs. I don't know if I'm advocating for all of that, but they have a, a much lower recidivism rate than we do. We send people to jail, they always come back, and I think that's a problem. And that's part of the problem in African American neighborhoods. So when you talk about this New York Times article that ties all the way back, why do black kids? grow up without fathers and why are they more likely to end up poor, I think a big part of that is um, some drug laws and the way America has gone as consistently targeted minorities. The legal system has, uh, economically it has, segregationally it has, how funds are attributed to schools. So I think there's a lot more to it um, than Ben Shapiro would like to think. I think there's a lot more to it than the New York Times would like to say. But I will say this. And this I wholeheartedly believe. This is one of the very, 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 very few countries where if you work hard, you have a real shot. I believe that. You have a real shot in this country. I'm from Brazil. You know, my mom and I came here speaking no English. Um, today, my mom's a business owner. She have two successful businesses. I'm in law school on a scholarship. Um... I'm married to a beautiful woman, and I live in my own apartment with a cat. That's pretty good. I got two cars. That's where I'm from. That's that's nearly rich. <laughs> so, despite all the problems in this country, I think it's easy to lose sight of the perspective, and that's what we need. I think. 
always remember, this is one of the greatest countries of all time, if not the greatest country of all time. And it's a place where you can have opportunity if you work hard. Now, will you get the same results as everybody else? Maybe not. If you're a black kid, are you going to have the same resources as one of your white friends? Probably not. I experienced that today, right? My own life, I experienced that where peers of mine in law school just have more resources. Their parents are well off. Their parents pay for them. Their parents have friends who are lawyers. I don't know any lawyers, right? Um, my parents aren't ability to, to pay my way through everything, nor would I want them to. But my kids might have a shot. My kids might be in the same spot because their dad worked hard and their dad went to law school and their dad became a good lawyer. So my kids might be in that spot and that's why I do what I do. That's why you work hard. Um, so you have that chance in this country and I think that's really important to remember because I think it's easy to get bogged down, um, especially when you have people like Emma Gonzalez speaking down on the country. I think it's, I think it's, it's easy to feel that way. Um, and real quick, let me just throw this out there. Speaking of Emma Gonzalez, um, to change the subject just for a second, going through a tragedy makes you an expert on how it feels. It doesn't make you an expert on how to solve it. So all these kids calling for gun control, listen, you're under tremendous pressure. You are the face of the movement. You are doing huge things. You will be remembered in history. You know, you'll be a blip, but you'll be there. That's great, and I really appreciate it, and they're exercising the First Amendment right, and I love that. They're being completely unreasonable. They're attacking people viciously. Um, Think of David Hogg putting out the price tag for Marco Rubio. You know, he said $1.05 is what you get for every kid. That's atrocious. That's terrible. And on the other side, in these attacks, you get people like um, whatever her name was, um, Graham, I think, coming out and attacking David Hogg for the colleges he didn't get into. Um, that's that's crazy. And David Hogg rightfully got a lot of her um, sponsors to back off, to stop sponsoring her. Rightfully so. The free market worked. But I think that um, I think the kids are in a good spot because they've been attacking people viciously. They've been calling them murderers. They've been saying, you have blood on your hands. And they get away with it because they're kids. And people can't really attack them uh, as they shouldn't be, but they shouldn't be so vicious either. So I think um, they're in a good spot to be kind of ruthless and lose some of that civility they came out with. Either way, I think they're wrong on most of their positions, of course. Um, Okay. I just want to get that out of there because I feel like they're getting so much credit. uh, And they're not saying a lot of facts. They're not saying a lot of useful things. And they're attacking people ruthlessly. All righty. Now, a note about power. This is one of my favorite subjects. Um, Power is a funny thing because power comes in many forms. Uh, We're going to talk about two today. Influence and positional power. And I think if you're a leader and you're listening to this podcast, which is surprising because not many people do, so welcome. But if you're a leader and you're listening to this podcast, this is very important for you. Two types of power. Positional power is exactly what it sounds like. Is you're a manager, you're in charge for whatever reason, you're the boss, right? Um, even if even if you're not directly over somebody, you have a position of respect. Influence is the opposite. 
influence is you have no real authority per se. Or if you do, you're not really using it to get anything done. People do things for you because they want to do things for you. People respect you. People want to make you happy. So they do things of their own free will. Clearly, this is the best kind of power, influence. And that's what you want. What you don't want is to be asserting your positional power. Positional power should always be your last card. Always. You should go through every single method you have. You should be persuasive. You can be stern. You can become uh, very passionate about your cause. You can be logical. You can use your influence. You can be charming. The last thing you want to do is positional power. Because if you have to say you're the king, then you're not the king. So when you get to the point where you say, well, do it because I said so, or do it because I'm the boss, you've lost, my friend. At that point, you may get what you wanted done, but you've lost face, you've lost respect. So here's my story about this. I used to work at Black Angus. Shout out to my old manager, Mark. Um, And Mark and I, listen, I don't do well with power. Um, Not me having it, per se. But sometimes I feel like leaders are inadequate. And when I feel like a leader is inadequate, it's hard for me to listen to them because I don't they don't have much influence over me. Right. I don't have much respect for them. I don't really want to be like them. So they end up only asserting positional power. So there I am. It's Thanksgiving. I just served. I have six tables. If you're a server, you'll you'll sympathize with me. I had six tables running about 30 people I'm serving and I'm getting drinks and I'm getting food. Um, and I think it's, no, it wasn't Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. It was just a busy Friday night. I had six tables going. Um, and Black Angus, you have to serve a soup. You got to serve a salad. You got an appetizer. People have just bottomless soda. They're chugging Diet Coke like it's the end of the world. So you're running, right? And I've been running for a while. It's towards the end of my shift. And I think to myself, you know what? I'm going to take a break. Let me look at my phone. This is what people do nowadays to relax or at least to distract themselves. Um, relax is probably the wrong term there. So look at your phone. So I'm looking at my phone. I'm hanging out. And my manager comes by and he says, hey, can you run some food? Running food means grabbing it from the window and taking it to a table. Mind you, I had already told him I was putting in my two weeks. I was getting, I was to be married soon. And I was working for Uber at the time. And I was making more money than I was at the restaurant. And I hated the restaurant. Um, a lot of discrimination from from customers. Uh, A lot of work, not much money, yada, yada. Anyways, so I tell him, yeah, give me one minute. I'll be right there. Well, this guy uh, doesn't think it's good enough. So he goes, he kind of gives me a look and he says right now. And listen, that right there. So right there, he's saying right now. Okay, that's problem number one. He's saying right now because he's the manager. He's trying to assert positional power. If he would have said, please, can you help me out? We're swamped. I probably would have done it. When you try to assert positional power over somebody who already put in their two weeks, you're going to have a bad time. So what did I say? I said, I said, in a minute. I will be there in a minute. That's what I said. So he doesn't like this, of course. It was in front of another employee, so he found it disrespectful. And here's here's the problem. He doesn't talk to me about it. He went and told someone else who told someone else who told someone else. And it got back to me that he was unhappy. If you've ever worked in a restaurant, you know this. uh, Things move at lightning speed because you're literally moving past people all day. 
So I heard that Mark was unhappy with me and he thought I was being insubordinate and he thought this and that, which I was, by the way. Uh, I admit that freely. And he thought this and that. So me being the kind of guy I am, I'm very confrontational. I like to solve problems as they arise. I don't like to wait. Um, I have no problem with conflict. I like conflict if I'm going to be a lawyer. I like arguments. I'm a weird person. So I walked in his office and said, hey, you want to talk to me? And he said, yeah, let me get another manager. So he brings in another manager and he's telling me, hey, man, you got to do what I say, blah, 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 blah. And I start giving him this exact advice I'm giving you, listener. I tell him, listen, I have no incentive to work here. I have already put in my two weeks and I put in my two weeks doing you a favor. I don't have to do that. That's not the law, by the way. The two week thing is not the law. It's if you want to use them as a reference. I was going to law school and working for Uber. I didn't need the restaurant reference. So he was kind of pulling on something that wasn't there. So that's what I told him. I said, listen, Mark, your management style is ineffective um, because you're trying to use positional power. And not only is that the worst kind of power to assert, you also don't have it because I'm leaving in two weeks. And it had already been a week, by the way, so I only had a week left. And mind you, before this conversation, he had asked me to work an extra day, which I said no to because I did not like working there. So I told him, listen, that's it, it's just not effective for you to do this. Uh, you could have gotten a better result if you would have asked me nicely, if you would have offered me some sort of incentive. And he said, well, I'm the manager. And I was asking him, like, I understand that, but there's not really anything you hold over me at this point. Uh, to be demanding and disrespectful, you know, it doesn't make any sense. I was tired. I'd done a great job. All my guests said so. And it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for you to assert this over me at this point. Anyways, so what does this guy do? And here's the point, right? Here's a point where you still can change the situation. So I'm not happy, right? Mark's not happy, but I've told him the problem. So he could have said, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. We do need you. Can you still come in? And I probably would have said yes, because when people realize they're wrong, other people are very gracious. People are very gracious when you admit you're wrong. Um, I've just started doing that, <laughs> admittedly, but people are very gracious, but he would not do it. Anyway, so he started to write me up. A write-up in a restaurant is basically a formal written complaint about you. It goes in your file. If you get a certain number of these, you're supposed to get fired, but nobody really does that. So anyways, he starts writing me a, compl- a write-up. And I think to myself, are you insane? What power does your write-up have over me? I am quitting. I don't want to work here. I gave you my two weeks as a courtesy. And now you're spitting in my face. So I said, Mark, your, your leadership is so lacking that you have to rely on the structure that Black Angus has given you. But the structure of Black Angus doesn't apply to the situation because I don't want the job. I don't need the job. I don't want the job. You're again trying to assert positional power. So I said he can keep his complaint and I was going to walk out the door and he was not going to see me and that he should mail my check to my residence on file, which he agreed to. Of course, he has to by law. And I just reminded him that, listen, if you want to be a good manager, you want to be a good leader, you want to be a good boss, you want to be a good anything, and you have a little power, never 
ever assert it. You only assert positional power as a last resort. Influence is the greatest thing you can have. It is possible for you to move up in rank. You can get a promotion and lose influence. You can move up and people not and people like you less and people respect you less and they'll want to do what you tell them less. And if you make them do it, you'll get a lower quality product than you would have if you had used influence instead. Influence is hard to attain, but it's very, very powerful. You don't have to be in a position of power to have influence. You just have to know how to garnish it. You have to know how to garner it. You have to know how to gain it. You have to know how to make people like you and make people want to do things for you. Or at the very least, make people respect you and respect your opinions. Um, anyways, that's my view on power, at least on uh, those two types of power. Maybe we'll have these little chats more often. I do like talking about power. Um, anyways, thank you for listening to The Goose is Loose. This has been episode number two. Uh, send me your questions, your concerns. If you disagree with me, I always love those. Um, if you have ideas, I would also love those. I had a few questions about if I would have a guest on. I will be having a guest. Um, that is not set yet. I can't quite tell you when that will be, but I will tell you I have about three weeks of school left and I have uh, law school finals, which are a nightmare. So maybe not anytime soon. Uh, but yes, the show will be featuring guests. Uh, people who I think are worth talking to, people who have good ideas, and who I would subject your ears to them. Thank you for listening to the Goose is Loose podcast, episode number two. Today is March 30th. Thank you very much. I'll see you guys next week.